I'm Nick Abrahams, and welcome to Web3, From Mystery to Main Street, the podcast where we talk about how technologies like crypto, DeFi, NFTs, and the metaverse are being successfully embraced by mainstream businesses. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. And I'm delighted to uh, be interviewing today someone who I've got an enormous amount of admiration for. It's Australia's e-safety commissioner, Julie Inman-Grant. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Not a lot of people say that. I either have too much power or not enough. <laughs> well, John, I feel like we've, we've known each other over many years. I know that e-safety is, you know, has been a very important topic in your life and has, has driven you to, uh, you know, the role of being e-safety commissioner, which you've had now for over five years, I think. Can you give us a bit of a sense, well, you know, what is the role of the e-safety commissioner? Sure, that's a great question, and and I think you're right. After 22 years in the industry, um, I like to say that I started out at Tech Policy Ground Zero back in Washington D.C. with Microsoft in the mid 1990s, when the Communications Decency Act was being right. considered, and the first White House um, summit on online safety was being held. Things have changed a lot, but things have also stayed the same. So it's it's been quite an honor that the, the world's first um, country to set up a national online safety regulator like e-safety e commissioner. And of course, we started as the children's e-safety commissioner, right. yeah. um, working to prevent online harms and then protecting Australians from a range of online harms that um, really a, a, a set of schemes and programs that have been layered on over time. And I guess the signature that I really brought to to um, the the regulatory sphere is um, how do we not just play that game of whack a whack a mole or whack a troll if you prefer <laughs> and um, really start thinking about we've got prevention we've got protection it's the proactive change thing that I'm also really um, interested in is you know how do we minimize the threat surface for the future um, and how do we shift more responsibility back onto the platforms themselves. You know, just as legislators all around the world did more than 50 years ago when it came to cars and embedding seatbelts, um, how do we get them to assess risk up front um, and build and embed those protections in at the get-go rather than retrofitting after the damage has been done, which of course we call safety by design, and understanding tech trends and challenges how we might harness these new technologies for good, but how do we minimize the risks uh, to the public um, now and down the track and communicate with them what is coming and in a way that's accessible for them. It, it so, just, it's an extraordinary mandate. It seems so so broad and all-encompassing, particularly as technology expands our, our universes. Maybe just um, with the commission itself, can you give us a bit of a sense how, how big is it, how many people, what you know, what divisions, business units do you have within the commission? Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, when I walked in the door five and a half years ago, there were 35 people. Um, I, um, you know, I'd come for 22 years in the tech sector and <laughs> from flat hierarchies. So I had to do a crash course in the Australian public service. Huh. Um, and I knew that we had to, to create more, much more of a hybrid culture that, you know, technology is always going to outpace uh, policy and regulation. So we had to figure out a way to be able to bring in an innovative mindset where we could pivot and we could anticipate um, risk rather than just responding to it as we happened. 
Um, so we're now about 200 strong. Um, you know, we've already had um, uh, our, our re regulation uh, totally reformed. So the Online Safety Act of 2021 came into play in January, uh, on January 24th of this year. So beyond having that remit uh, around prevention, uh, protection of proactive change, and, you know, I could talk for five to 10 minutes about each of those areas, but essentially prevention is, is about establishing an evidence base that hasn't existed before. So fundamental research, but also harnessing the insights and intelligence that we get from our threat trends, um, from our complaint schemes, um, and making sure that we're, we're developing content that's really audience focused. Um, so we started with building, um, you know, materials and prevention materials for kids. Then we had to move, um, you know, very quickly to um, materials that serve all Australians. And now we're actually focused really on the most, um, you know, really vulnerable um, or at-risk Australians. So we've got a whole new team around um, diversity and inclusion and, and vulnerable communities. Um, so that's, that's work in and of itself and actually getting people, um, Australians, to look at the content, to engage with it and, and really apply it um, into their daily technology use and, and to really um, enable that behavioral change over time is the biggest challenge. Um, we've actually had some success there um, now that we've, we've had, we have about seven years of runway. And we found that when I came in, uh, about 50% of kids would talk to their parent about something that had gone wrong or would report to a social media site or use conversation controls. We now know that kids are, more than 90% of kids will use blocking, muting, and reporting tools. And about 70% of kids will, oh, it's amazing. Okay. Yep. Um, and about 70% um, are now talking to their parents um, when something goes wrong, something like cyberbullying. Interestingly, we interviewed their parents at the same time, and only 50% of the parents recalled having that conversation right. um, when a child confided in them. And I, and I think that's part of this uh, generational divide that we're experiencing. Uh, I think I told you earlier, about 95% of Australian parents have told us that they see online safety as the most challenging parental problem. Only 10% will actually go and seek out information until something goes wrong. I think there's also this generational divide or this digital disconnect that exists because people of our generation, we kind of compartmentalize what happens to us online. Whereas young people today, their online lives are their lives. Right. They're totally interconnected. So we know with youth-based cyberbullying, for instance, um, almost all cyberbullying is an extension of conflict that's already happening within the school gates. It's peer-to-peer. So it does become more invasive and, and, and more pervasive. And so you can't just compartmentalize harm or bullying that, that's happening online versus, versus um, you know, your, your real life. So there are a lot of cultural and societal uh, factors at play here. So that's prevention, protection. We've talked a little bit about proactive change. So I, I did my, the latest branch that I stood up is around um, tech trends and challenges and futures and uh, developing industry engagement and enablement um, programs like Safety by Design, doing it with industry rather than to them, surfacing up innovative best practice. 
so that some of these more wicked or intractable um, technology issues, we can show other companies um, how innovation can be used to, to tackle issues like recidivism um, or um, detection of various forms of illegal content. Um, so a lot of innovation that, that can be happening there. Um, we've, we've got um, our inv about 43 investigators, um, which is great from where we were, but you know, we've got 43 investigators for about five different schemes right. around youth cyberbullying, image-based abuse, which is the non-consensual sharing of intimate images and videos, abhorrent violent material, illegal content, including child sexual abuse material, and, um, um, and anything instructing in terrorism or crime, um, and then a new adult cyber abuse scheme. Layered onto that are two new systemic reforms that really are meant to ta tackle um, lift safety standards, standards at scale. And one of those is a co-regulatory scheme around industry codes. Now the industry has just finished doing a public consultation around those codes. The first tranche of codes deals with um, what companies across eight different sectors of the technology industry will be doing to proactively detect, um, remove, and basically prevent access to illegal content, what we call class one content. So mostly child sexual abuse material and um, pro-terrorist content. The industry will present to me the codes sometime in the mid-November timeframe, and then I'll have to make an assessment as to whether or not I think they meet appropriate community standards, lift safety standards, and are beyond status quo. Um, if you know, I'm hoping for the best and that, that um, we're able to register those codes and move, move on to the second tranche, which will be about protecting um, under 18s from access to pornography. Um, but if not, um, there, there's a provision that um, will enable to, me to make standards. And then there's something, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot. And, and I noticed in, in what you've been talking about, it sort of feels you know, it's it's very much about the Web two world, isn't it? You've you've had tremendous success, whether it's with, you know, getting um, the the big social media platforms to to behave more responsibly and so forth. And you talk about platform operators. I guess now we're headed into this Web three world, which brings with a you know concept of decentralization and so forth. And obviously the metaverse. And I was just wondering, you know, do you have your own sort of thoughts around what? What constitutes the metaverse? What what actually do people mean when they talk about the metaverse? I think if anybody tells you that they know exactly what the metaverse will look like, um, they shouldn't be believed. I mean, if the major platforms do achieve a degree of interoperability, then the metaverse could become one extended 3D world that we want to escape into or it could look more like a multiverse with a range of walled garden author offerings. You know, it'd be great if your kids could go to Legoland and then, you know, 3D Disneyland, but sexy land might be right next door. Who right. knows? Right. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I, what I think is really interesting about both web three um, and that web three first um, is <sighs> You're talking about crypto and NFT and blockchain. And essentially, I think of it as a philosophy as much as a, a technology paradigm shift. 
you know, it's around disintermediating um, internet gatekeepers, whether they're the big technology players or banking and financial institutions or regulators like us or law enforcement. But what nobody who's architecting this new world or advocating for this new world can tell me is how harm will be remediated. So I've asked a bunch of blockchain um, you know, specialists. So if child sexual abuse and online harassment can be you know, held on a public ledger and it's immutable, does that mean it exists forever? I mean, what does this mean for notice and takedown? Probably nothing. Uh, another question I've asked is, well, you know, how do you root out bad actors in this world if everything is decentralized and nobody's really accountable or responsible? And I get, well, you know, we'll just get the community will root out the bad actors. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's working really well today. Isn't it? Um, There's like a techno utopian dream that I think a lot of. A lot of folks, and you know, and that's very much a philosophy. And I know on social media, I sort of get, you know, get caught a bit by people who who don't like it when I mention, you know, I might mention Meta or something in a post about what Meta is doing. And you know, the true decentralization zealots are like, you know, Meta has no business being in our world. Um, and so it's it's this very it's this very strong view. But yet, you, you know, you're quite right. That immutability of the blockchain um, that means that you know we've got a real problem with um, you know as you said content uh, and other things existing there and you know the very idea that the community um, you know through DAOs and so forth can effectively enforce such things you know just as we've seen DAOs have have been you know most most organisations that describe themselves as DAOs aren't really DAOs in the sense of everyone votes on everything, um, you know, it's really, it's almost sort of gone into almost a corporatized structure with governance, um, like boards and so forth. So it feels like the true decentralized proposition will struggle um, over time. We'll see more centralized control, which, you know, may, maybe that means that there will be people or, you know, we can find uh, organizations or individuals who can be responsible for things. But for a regulator, very difficult. Yeah, and I'd, I'm not under no illusions we, we'd be regulating that part of the world. Um, uh, but of course, we are seeing, uh, you know, crypto and Bitcoin has a huge, uh, is a huge feature in a lot of the sexual extortion cases right. that we're seeing. We're seeing crypto, we've been seeing this for years, being, being used to sort of um, hide uh, child sexual abuse um, hosting mechanisms or to to um, really allow the transactions between pedophiles of this kind of content. But what really scares me, I'm glad you mentioned techno-utopian colored glasses because I remember having those in the mid-1990s. <laughs> I think we all did. Yes. And, and what I'm scared about is that they're going to be um, coming to you in an Oculus headset <laughs> or, um, you know, or a Snap or Apple AR glasses. And this is what's really freaky, I think, about the metaverse. And uh, in our tech trends and challenges briefs, I think we put this forward about 18 months ago. We, were, we didn't, it wasn't called the metaverse. Now we, we called, we refer to it as immersive technologies. But we actually, pre we, we actually predicted, um, you know, hyper-realistic online sexual assaults. And lo and behold, you, Mia Jane Patel had that terrible experience. But 
you're right now. I mean, you can do things like um, you can do like uh, webcasting, I suppose. But, you know, your kids are going to be having these glasses on their face. Not only will they not be able to get dates, <laughs> uh, but, but you won't be able to see what they're seeing and they won't be able to unsee it. So it's not as much about content as it is about conduct. And, um, you know, of course, the whole idea of the, the meta- metaverse is to blur what's real and what's not. And when you're talking about hyperrealism and you're probably talking about, you know, whole new forms of sex tech. Um, and teledildonics and haptics and wearables and all of these things um, that could actually have so many incredible uses. I mean, I think about, I would love to send my kids to ancient Rome in the universe so they could see the sights, the smells and the sounds, you know, of, of you know, of the gladiators um, in the Colosseum. Um, but I do worry about my kids wandering into online strip clubs where, you know, if you look at the seat, um, the, the center for countering digital hate did a, um, a little experiment in horizon worlds and found that once every six minutes, an avatar posing as a kid was propositioned by an avatar that was ostensibly an adult. Um, so particularly in private spaces, how are we going to protect people from those kinds of harms? And I don't think the answer is regulating now, because what are we going to be regulating? Yeah. And we apply regulation after the damage has been done. But this is where I think safety by design is critical. We need the architects of Web3 and the metaverse to be thinking about the risks now, to building in the safety protect- protections, preventing the misuse and weaponization of these technologies. But we still tend to hurdle towards um, the exciting and the sexy rather than stopping to think about what do we want these new online worlds to actually be look like and function. Yeah. And is this, is your office getting sort of complaints and issues around these more immersive technologies now? Is it sort of coming from, I guess, you know, the gaming world, whether it's the Fortnite and the Roblox? Is it, is it actually happening now or is it sort of still just simmering under the surface? Um, well, I, you know, I think it is probably the the gaming companies that are going to actually have the edge in the metaverse. Um, and, you know, on on one hand, um, the online gaming industry really understands, um, you know, they, they have the experience of Gamergate and they know that there, there's actually more choices when you think about it in the online gaming space. Yeah. So people and vote with their feet if an environment is is too toxic or too hostile, um, whether it's you know misogynist or racist abuse or or otherwise. Um, but you know the the whole idea of you know a comprehensive metaverse is also going going to be dependent on identity that travels, I suppose, with your your avatar. The gaming the gaming industry has already been kind of thinking about that kind of interoperability. Um, uh, you're seeing some of the companies really deploying some innovative tools to try and make sure that their platforms are safer. But I mean, you hear stuff, we, we still see stuff and hear stuff all the time about, um, you know, kids walking into sex clubs in Meep City. Um, well, of course, there was the, um, the Knox Grammar um, situation with Discord. And we're actually seeing a lot more online abuse and the sharing of um, 
violent extremism content and child sexual abuse happening over the chat functions and online gaming worlds. And, you know, one of the things we tell parents, particularly when they have their kids playing games like Fortnite, yeah. um, where you're paired with 99 other people um, who could be, you know, adult strangers with your teenager or other foul-mouthed teenagers, so you should have them playing these games in open areas of the home and probably not wearing headphones if you really want to hear what they're experiencing and see what they're experiencing. Of course, you could take it a step further and co-play and co-view, um, but some of these environments really aren't fit for purpose for, for, for young people. And, you know, frankly, what we saw over the pandemic were, were parents being a lot more permissive right. with technology use. So now we have all these kids who are, eight, nine, and 10 years old coming back to school with their own smartphone on TikTok, on, you know, on Snap, on Be Real, on all these platforms that they're really not cognitively and developmentally ready for. Right. Very interesting. I mean, for your organisation, how, how are you planning for the future? I guess now you've mentioned that you've got a technology trends group, which sounds very forward-thinking. You know, is it how, how do you see you know, the e-safety commissioner's role and the organization's role? Because in many respects, if we move into an immersive world, it's almost like, you know, it's Julie Inman Grant becomes our our major sort of police presence because you're on, you're, you're in a, a fully immersive world. How do we, who do we complain to if we get, you know, attacked in, in one of those worlds? How does that, how does that all roll out? Well, listen, we're trying to take one step at, uh, right. one step at, Time and also depends on what the government of the day um, wants to help see us become and enable us to become. One of the things we're doing right now is we're developing a whole new regulatory operations model um, so that we can sort of rethink everything that we do to make sure that our codes and our basic online safety expectations, which is our uh, key transparency tool, you may have seen that we uh, issued uh, seven legal notices to um, Microsoft, Skype, Snap, Meta, WhatsApp, um, Omegle, and a, you know, a, a few others. That's just the first tranche to really get transparent information about what tools they were using to detect grooming and, and um, child sexual abuse images and videos. We're, we're working through that process now so that we can see more radical transparency. I'm going to be using those tools in very different ways, but I want to make sure that we've got our, our robust um, systemic regulatory tools um, in the codes and bows are sitting together um, and co-located with our investigative team so that all those insights are working together and all the insights that we're gathering from all of this is informing our research and our data and ultimately our education and prevention issues. Uh, I, I think the challenge has been, and I, you know, I guess I took this from my 22 years in tech, you know, you have to keep moving forward, you have to keep innovating, um, you have to keep anticipating and um, make sure that you, we're really nimble and that we can pivot to new threats and trends. And that's how I've tried to, to, to set us up to the best of my ability. That isn't always easy in a, um, a, a government construct, but I'm doing the, the, the best that I can so that we can tackle the challenges that we have now and really harness the insights and learnings and put it towards keeping people safer for the future. 
And uh, it's, I mean, you've made a tr an extraordinary impact in your time in the role. I guess you've mentioned safety by design a few times, which, which until, you know, you and your organisation started talking about it, I, I had not been aware of, obviously, heard of privacy by design. But um, can you just give us a little bit of a sense of, you know, what does that mean for organisations that, uh, you know, might be looking at to, to deploy, whether it's in the metaverse or indeed in Web2, you know, what does it mean to say safety by design? Well, thank you for asking. Um, I actually brought the, the concept of safety by design uh, to Microsoft over 10 years ago when I was their head of global um, privacy and safety policy and outreach. You know, I was sitting in product design assessments where we were, we were doing risk assessments around accessibility, around security vulnerabilities and around uh, potential privacy breaches. And I kept saying, well, what about personal harms? And I kind of got the little eye roll like, oh, we're, you know, we're going to become an enterprise company, Julie. You know, we're not going to be a social media site. But I was like, hey, there's, you know, Skype is being used as a vector for live stream child sexual abuse. And Xbox at the time was, um, you know, pretty toxic. They've, they've done a really good job at um, um, moving that forward. Um, but I guess I figure that I couldn't be a safety antagonist inside. And yeah, I guess becoming a poacher turned gamekeeper um, really did, you know, give me the imprimatur um, to sort of say, hey, really, how do we shape the future? If, we, if, if we're not building fundamentally safer products, platforms, and services, there's no way we're going to regulate our way out of online harms. We have to put that responsibility back onto the platform. So we started by, but I also knew we had to do this with industry rather than to industry. So four years ago, we sat down with major players in the industry and we worked through what a principles-based framework would look like with actions underneath of them. them. So the three key pillars are transparency and accountability, user empowerment and autonomy, and service provider responsibility. Um, we had a lot of the major players um, sign off on that, but I very much felt that principles are only useful if they're implemented. And I think you would probably agree that there are so many principles-based frameworks out there that we all feel a little bit dizzy. So we, we spent another 18 months and we consulted with 180 different organizations to build some risk assessment tools. So we've got safety by, by design risk assessment tools built for, um, built for uh, startups and one for mid-tier and enterprises. And they're, they're free to use. They've been downloaded by companies in 46 countries. Um, but you'll see that they're peppered with really great insights and inputs from a range of companies from Google to Yubo to Snap to Nextdoor in terms of how they dealt with issues and really surfacing up best practice. This isn't all about being punitive. This is about sur surfacing up um, innovations. Um, and uh, we used to talk a lot in the industry about co-opetition. Um, and of course, all the companies can meet, compete on these things, but the area that we should be cooperating in is absolutely across safety and, and, and sharing how we're, we're making our platforms uh, safer. So we're taking this to the um, universities, we're taking this to the VCs and investment, often the VCs are the um, adults in the room. Right. So we've developed some due diligence clauses, we've developed checklists that they can take to their, the, 
you know, Series A funding. Hey, have you thought about this? You know, we don't need to have any more cautionary tales or tech wrecks. Um, we haven't really seen the VCs investment companies uh, take this on at scale, but maybe you can help us there, Nick. <laughs> well, I hope so. If uh, if there are any VCs listening, um, uh, it's definitely worth uh, getting across that because I, I, in fact, I was working on a project uh, the other day, and the question came up, which was, uh, you know, how, what, you know, what should we do around designing this? And I, I was, you know, happily able to. Uh, point that organisation to the safety by design uh, materials that you have, because particularly around things like AI and so forth, it, you know, we're getting into some into some space which which throws up a lot of sort of ethical questions, almost more than legal questions. And so, uh, so to have a framework like that and and detailed tools. Uh, is very helpful. So yeah, I certainly um, you got me actually out of a very difficult spot with that. So uh, <laughs> it worked out very well. I guess. Well, thank you. Now, what's really exciting is um, that if you look at the new um, regulators and the regulation that's um, popping up around the world in the UK with the online safety bill, in Europe with the D Digital Services Act, in Canada, in New Zealand. Safety by design is now a feature. So uh, for a long time, I felt like I was yelling, safety by design, <laughs> like a, an open tavern. Right. Um, I, I like to think of it as, as my greatest hits, but it it is start starting to catch on. I think because it makes sense. Yeah. It just hasn't been prioritized vis-a-vis -vis, uh, security and privacy up until now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, we, we will start to see that more and more as we have, you know, frankly, with, you know, privacy was, you know, that was a slow burn for many, many years. And then, you know, that's obviously become sort of, you know, a critical issue. And then cyber similarly and, you know, with recent hacks, et cetera. So now that's, uh, that's front of mind. So, yeah, I think particularly as we see the more immersive style um, platforms come out, you know, I think safety by design is going to be critical. Just one final question, and this really gets to not about Web3 uh, per se, but just you mentioned that staggering statistic that what was it, 95% of parents say that sort of, uh, you know, dealing with their kids' online behaviour is their hardest issue, but yet 10% uh, have actually sought out information to help them with that. Maybe maybe we could help sort of with that, with the disparity in those metrics. So. What, what advice do you have or what, you know, tools and resources um, do you recommend for for parents who, uh, who are struggling with this issue? Well, listen, I don't think we have to, you know, become technological wizards to be able to talk to our kids about staying safer online. We have the judgment, the experience and maturity. Um, and, you know, we really need to prepare them for the on online world. So um, I don't think um, device denial, which is... Yeah which is a place that a lot of uh, parents go is the right place to go because you can't build digital resilience if you're not allowing your kids to have some of these experiences. It's not a matter of um, when, but if, but we do have to provide that uh, protective scaffolding to make sure that they're not, um, you know, fall, falling prey to some of the more serious crimes that we see. So some really basic stuff. And I started doing this over the pandemic, so I'm trying to eat my own dog food, as they say, having three kids. But, um, you know, 
we ask our kids what's happening at school, what's happening in, in, in sport, um, what's happening with their friendship groups. We should ask them what's happening online as well. Have them, have them walk us through, like, are you on Snap? Are you on Be Real? Um, can, um, you know, can, this is really for teens. You know, we know that 94% of four-year-olds have access to a digital device. So we need to start by setting parental controls and privacy settings um, on by default at the highest levels. We need to be, um, we, we've got guidance for parents of under fives. Be safe, be kind, um, you know, ask for help, make good choices. Um, so we have to start early. When we move into the primary years, it's about the four R's of the digital age. Respect, responsibility, um, building digital resili resilience and critical reasoning skills. So I often tell my kids to question everything. You know, is this a fake account? Um, is this true? Is this misinformation? Is this fake news? So question everything, honing those judgment and digital uh, literacy skills. So setting boundaries up front. Um, about how much time they can spend online. We've got a couple of technology agreements that are up there. Oh, and okay. we know that kids actually sit down with their parents and help design the rules that they're more likely to stick to it. You can do yourself a favor as a parent if you set those parameters early and often, then you're not going to have to deal with the techno tantrums that um, that are likely to ensue. These, um, I feel like these are these are sort of better than the dog agreements uh, that, uh, you know, if we get a dog, I'll look after it. So I have heard of people having much better luck with the technology agreements where you uh, you can actually sort of rely on that. If you, you know, if you do sort of discuss that early on, and we've done that with our kids, just, it's just you know, we didn't reduce it to writing necessarily, but that, that really clear understanding as to, you know, if you get this particular device, here's the expectations around it. Yeah. And, and really basic things. I mean, I've got a teenager. Um, she, she does. Uh, I try and have the kids using technology in open areas of the home so I can see what they're doing and, and, you know, nothing that happens behind closed doors and sorry to scare parents, but what our investigators are seeing more and more of is self-produced child sexual abuse material that is often coerced yeah. in the privacy of bedrooms and bathrooms. So you need to know that. So doing that, co-playing and co-viewing. Co um, you want to know what your kid's experiencing on Fortnite, maybe have them take off the uh, headphones and um, play a few matches with them. Um, you know, be engaged in their online lives the way you are their everyday lives and leave conversations open so that kids know that they can come to you and that you'll help them through it. Go to esafety.gov.au to report any form of abuse but also to get information, you know, you can spend some time walking your kids through some of the materials or even educating yourself. Be one of the 10% and maybe we can get that number higher. That's that's seeking out that information before something goes, goes wrong online. Fantastic. Uh, Julie, I know you are incredibly passionate about uh, this topic and it really comes through in, in the groundbreaking work uh, that you and your team have done. And so really on behalf of, I, I guess, you know, all of Australia, do I thank you and your team? Because the sort of things that, that you and your team have to deal with on a daily basis, uh, you know, are, are the very worst of human, uh, behavior. And, um, and so you and the team have done a phenomenal job, 
uh, with trying to, you know, get a pathway through the darkness. So thank you very much for that. And, uh, you know, we wish you all the very best into the future, whatever that uh, metaverse may hold. So thank you very much, Julie Inman Grant. <laughs> thank you so much, Nick. Thanks for listening to Web3 from Mystery to Main Street. Nothing in this podcast is legal or financial advice. Have a great day. And remember, every organisation needs a Web3 strategy.